trees, a substitute for burning the real things. On the rather gruesome side, there are examples of the implements mediums use for self-flagellation during frenzied rites. And on the rather more pleasant side, there's a corner where you can press buttons and enjoy the scents of different incense. All of this is waiting, alongside indigenous clothes, tools, and other artifacts, for those who know where to find them, in the side wing of one building on the campus of Academia Sinica. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. From a bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to a temple procession in Taipei, the people of our world are passionate about their beliefs. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and here with me in the studio, I have Holly Harrington, who is a startup consultant, and uh, she's from Maryland, USA. She's been in Taiwan 13 years. Well, let's meet Holly. Hi, Holly. Hi, Shirley. Nice talking to you today. Yes, yes. So anyway, um, let's uh, find out about you. First of all, why are you in Taiwan? Oh, that's that's a very long, long, long answer, I think, uh, with yeah. lots of twists and turns. But, okay. Uh, the original reason I came to Taiwan in 2005 was uh, I studied political science in college. And during that time, I was actually in college for almost seven years. Um, and I did a lot of activities. So as a student, I got to do lobbying and writing bills and campaigning for, you know, presidential candidates and things. But by the time I graduated, I didn't like politics anymore because it felt shallow and ineffective. Um, so I joined AmeriCorps, which is the U.S. domestic volunteer program, kind of like Peace Corps, but locally. Uh, and I did that for a year, but uh, I, you know, I needed to be able to support myself. And as a volunteer, you can't really pay the bills very well. As much as I loved it, I needed to do something else, but I didn't know what. And someone said, why don't you go teach abroad and maybe you can do something and then you can come back and find your way after that. And I had a few choices of country and it ended up that just Taiwan seemed like the best of of all the different places. I, what were the other choices? Uh, Japan, China, and South Korea. You knew you and, wanted to come to Asia. Well, that was just what I knew about as far as teaching abroad. I, I didn't really know anything about Taiwan until I knew about Made in Taiwan because <laughs> uh, I grew up, you know, in the eighties and all the jokes and movies and TV about Made in Taiwan stuff. Uh, but otherwise, I didn't know anything about. About it, but after research, I found um, I would have had to teach in Beijing, and I was coming from a cold climate, and I wanted to go somewhere a little warmer. bit warmer. Uh, Korea, I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't think I liked Korean food. Japan, I loved as a kid for whatever reason, but uh, it seemed like it was more expensive and a little bit less culturally friendly to Westerners. Uh -huh. uh, so I settled on Taiwan as like a warmer place, and you know I liked Chinese food, so I thought. Oh, Taiwanese food must be pretty similar. 
And so I went for it. And I think that I made the right choice, because if I had gone to one of those other places, I have a feeling I would not still be in Asia today. This is so interesting. So you did a lot of research and uh, kind of like sort of <laughs> drew up a chart of pros and cons about the different countries, right? Yeah. You were already studying Chinese before you came to Taiwan? No, not at all. In fact, I didn't really start learning until I was here for about six months because I thought I was going to come for a year. And I thought, well, you know, it's too hard of a language to master in that amount of time. Um, I'll get by. And then about half a year in, I realized, oh, you know what? I'm probably not going to go back home after a year. So I might as well, you know, learn a few things. And so I started doing language exchange. You know, I learned in my first six months how to order some food near my office and, and stuff like that, but very little else. Uh, and so I just started doing that language exchange. I started going to uh, KTV a lot. Um, <laughs> I like singing, and I actually made a blog called KTV Xiaojie, um, which... <laughs> Miss KTV. Uh, yeah, I... At the time, there weren't a lot of resources online. If you couldn't read characters and you wanted to learn the pinyin so you can actually start learning the songs. So I, by hand, I, I translated all those songs um, from characters into the pinyin. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, also recommended music to other people and sort of gave my, my thoughts on the music and rated it by difficulty of the language and also like the singing difficulty. And also I, I watched a lot of movies and um, Taiwanese soap operas as well. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, watched them with the subtitles and paused them and studied. And I really got into those. I'm not a good student, so oh, but I'm, you're a diligent one. You went to the extent of, um, you know, learning the language. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, of course, I've also told people if they really want to improve the English, I think learning English songs is the way to go. Yes. You know, with the pronunciation, getting the right intonation, yeah. or whatever, the tones and all that. Mm. You know, and now here you are, you're saying you learn <laughs> Chinese through going to KTVs. I would say a lot of the vocabulary I learned in the beginning was about heartbreak and tears. <laughs> and um, so I learned a lot of those vocabulary very early on when I didn't really need them as much as I needed this is you know, directions or ordering food or how to order tea um, from a tea shop properly. But I knew about heartbreak. Uh. But, you know, also watching the videos, the music videos taught me a lot about Taiwanese culture. Um, and I was able to connect with other local people and friends too that way. I used to live in Ximending for a little while. And at the Red House, Honglo, they used to always have music artists come in on the weekends. They would right. have a stage there. They don't really do that anymore. Um, mm. But there used to be a lot of like like a, you know, a little performance and autograph signing by these pop stars. And so it was so great for me because I knew who these people were. Like, you know, oh, look, it's it's Soda Green or uh -huh. Wang Lihong or somebody is, is there on stage. And so I, you know, I felt like, wow, I'm so super local. Like I, I even just as excited about these people. Although most of the time, I know other people, if they saw me in the crowd, they're like, oh, what is this foreigner doing here? Like, they probably don't have any idea who this person is. And occasionally they would ask me like, oh, do you know? So this guy is this famous singer. And like, yeah, I know. I know all his songs. <laughs> In my background, I was very bright growing up, and so everybody had high hopes for me. Um, and that sort of sparked my, you know, wanderlust, like, oh, I always want to achieve more. Um, so I came from a, a high school where I think I had 110 classmates in my graduating class. I never lived in a town more than 
10,000 people before okay. I moved to Taiwan. So I, I knew I needed to sort of get out of places in order to, to experience more. Have your parents ever visited you here? My mom actually came this okay. year. Um, oh, okay, this year. For a, a month. Uh -huh. uh, it was the first time, again, our, our family, you know, we come from pretty modest means and it wasn't easy, even though I offered to, to book her flight, um, she still needed to take care of my grandparents and just a lot of circumstances. Uh -huh. So just this year, we actually were able to make it happen. I uh, see. And she's already talking about next year. <laughs> next year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, she's really excited. She met a lot of my friends in Taiwan. Mm. Um, she talks to them on Facebook. She had a lot of culture shock. Um, it was also her first time abroad, actually, um, at 62 years old. She still really loved it. And she's already, you know, like, well, maybe later in your life, maybe you want to come here and live with me. Oh, Because um, wow. it would be a good place for her. Uh -huh. She's not a city person either. Uh -huh. um, but Taiwan is just, you know, there's so many things. I've, I've been here this long, and there's still so much I have not discovered. And she's also yes. not very adventurous, but it, it's so easy to discover things everywhere you turn in Taiwan. So yes. hopefully she'll sort of consider that in the future. Well, that is so neat. <laughs> she must be proud of you. I I hope so. <laughs> I'm so distant from venture, everybody else now. Yeah, you venture yeah. so far away from home and you're on your own in 13 years and mm -hmm. you've done a lot. And Well, yeah. after I think it was three or four. Four, maybe four or five years was when she finally stopped asking, when am I coming back? Because oh. um, <laughs> it, it was supposed to be one year. But my story is so similar to so many other people's stories I've met in this whole time. Mm -hmm. You know, Americans, Canadians, British friends, um, they came here for a semester for college or they came here to teach for a year. And, and 15, 20 years later, they're, yeah. they're still here. And I've interviewed a few of those. You know? Yeah. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. What do you think it is about Taiwan that people just change their mind, you know, and decide to stay? I honestly, I think it's it's not even just the people who stay. It's also the people that come for a short visit and then regret not booking a longer stay no, and then they really? come back. I have a friend who actually just did this. He's about to come back to Taiwan for his third trip. It's just, when you get here, it's totally different from what you expected. Um, oh. You know, it's one... Everything is very affordable, easy to get to, transportation is very easy, but even if it weren't, people are just so happy to help you all the time, which at least for an American, like, I feel guilty sometimes because people want to help me. Actually, I learned very, very early on not to casually mention things to Taiwanese friends about something that I need oh. because they will immediately offer to do it for me. Take it seriously. Um, yeah, like, uh, you know, if, if I... I was talking to Westerners and say, oh, yeah, I'm getting ready to move to a new apartment. And like, yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. Um, Westerners would be like, yeah, I hate that, too. Uh -huh. um, whereas Taiwanese, and it's, this has happened twice since I've lived in Taiwan. Uh, Taiwanese friends will say, oh, do you need help moving? You know, I can get you some boxes. And like, when are you going to do it? You know, I can get my friend's car. And like, no, no, no. <laughs> I you, That's because especially for Americans, there's sort of two things that you never ask your friends if you want them to say your friends it's to ask them to pick you up from the airport 
and ask them to help you move. <laughs> and I've had Taiwanese friends offer these things. Um, also, when I go to the MRT, if I'm looking at a map, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to figure out which exit to go out of to get to the place that I'm trying to go to, I always try to do it really quickly because inevitably there's always someone who comes and asks me, like, really? oh, do you need help? Are you lost? What are you looking for? And I, I even feel a little rude sometimes if I don't, you know, accept the help. I'm amazed because you say you only learned Chinese after you came here. Mm-hmm. But actually you've been doing lectures or giving speeches in Chinese. <laughs> are you hard on yourself, like, you know, giving yourself intense courses in Chinese? Have you taken courses or you're self-taught? Chinese. Uh, I never took a, a class. I did language exchange. I did um, a couple of times. I tried one-on-one lessons, um, but I just couldn't stick with it. So it's almost entirely just been through experiencing cultural things. So KTV, movies, going to <laughs> concerts. Um, and that was why I moved to Ximending in the, in the beginning. That was around 2007, 2008. Before it was so, like, it's so much more commercial now than it used to be. Mm, I need um, to explain. This place yeah. is really popular with young people mostly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it, it didn't used yeah. to attract so many um, overseas crowds as it does now. Um, when I lived there, there were not very many Westerners that lived there. Now there's, you know, craft beer places and mm. all kinds of, of bars and restaurants that, that didn't used to be there. And I moved there because I wanted to move away from the, like, Taida area or um, Shida, like, the areas where a lot of other Westerners live. Yeah, and... And College, yeah, campuses. Yeah, because yeah, even in 7-Eleven or wherever, they, they would speak to me in English the moment <sighs> they saw my face. So I wanted to go to a neighborhood where I was, you know, one of the few Westerners and I could actually, you know, practice more. Um, and now I live in Datong District and I, I'm really like the only one in my neighborhood, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and to the point where if I do see other like Westerners there, I'm also like, oh, what are they doing here? That, are, are they lost? <laughs> but it's good for me because I still sort of keep, you know, I have to interact with people who can't speak English as much. Um, and as long as they know that I can speak Chinese, then they don't try to speak English to me. So I would say my Chinese has actually gotten worse oh. um, because for my job that I've done the last several years, um, we work with uh, entrepreneurs from Taiwan on getting their companies into international markets. So all of the work that we did, all of the consulting and um, mentoring programs, workshops, everything was done in English. And our workplace also, we we were an English-first work environment to create a place where people felt comfortable using English all the time. So I wouldn't let people speak Mandarin to me. Mm. And many people didn't even know that That I could. could. Yeah, Yeah, um, but to my own detriment, because then I I think I got a little bit out of practice. Um, So I started to sort of give myself more challenges and, you know, giving talks and doing interviews or things. Also going to, you know, government hearings or places where I would have to be able to talk about something I cared about, mm-hmm. um, which for me is the best way to learn. Is if It's not just to learn for the sake of learning language, but to use it for something else that you're passionate about is really helpful. And so now I'm sort of back to trying to study. I'm, I'm reading a novel in Chinese right now, um, just sort of get back to that habit of using it all the time. Because once I am here, 
here for much longer, my Chinese still has to keep progressing. Like I'm not like a native speaker. There's still a lot I don't know. So I have to always be learning. Next week, we'll be hearing more from Holly Harrington about her work here in Taiwan for the last 13 years. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin. Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Let me tell you perhaps the most famous Chinese story about a man who tried to DIY at home. Ago in ancient China, there was a man who happened to be walking through a market downtown. He walked past vendors selling chicken and geese. And pigs. And there even was a vendor selling sheep. he walked through the market, he suddenly saw a store that was selling carts. Look at that cart. I need one of those for my work. When he asked the owner how much he was selling it for, he was surprised to discover he couldn't afford it. That's way too much money for a cart. I mean, I can easily make one of these myself. All you need is some wood and tools. It's got to be a cinch. So, one day... He went off to the forest to find some wood. There he found a beautiful tree. This wood is going to be perfect for my homemade cart. He began chopping the tree. And he was so happy because he was on his way to making his own smart DIY cart. Now I just need to take all this wood home, chop it up, and put it together like a cart. <laughs> this shouldn't be that hard, right? He walked home so proud of himself that he collected all that high-quality wood. After he got home, he started chopping away again. He really didn't have a plan. Look at all this wood I've got. I'm sure these pieces of wood can be put together to make a cart. Now, how do I make the wheels? Hmm. He actually had no idea what he was doing. How in the world do you make wheels from wood? 
He thought about it for days, but couldn't figure it out. Ah, never mind the wheels. Uh, let's put this card together first. All I have to do now is put these pieces of wood together somehow and, uh... Hmm. How come they don't seem to fit? It started to dawn on him that it wasn't going to be as easy as he thought. He could have gone back to town to ask the cart seller how to make a cart, but he didn't. He wanted to DIY and figure it out all by himself. Urgh, this is not that easy, but I'll figure it out. I'm going to lock myself in my home until I do. And that's what he did for a whole year. Whenever someone wanted to see him or talk to him, he would give him the same reply. I'm busy making my cart. He acted like he knew what he was doing, but he was getting really frustrated. <sighs> oh, this is driving me crazy. Why isn't this wood turning into a cart? Oh, how do I make wheels out of pieces of wood? Oh. As you may have guessed, he never did construct that cart. And he only drove himself crazy, locking himself in his room to do it. Classic Chinese Phrases and Idioms There's a classic Chinese idiom about the story of this man from ancient China who locked himself in his home to make a cart. Close door, make cart. Bimen, zaozi. Nowadays, it's used to describe someone who does things very subjectively. Someone who is not in touch with or who shuts himself off from the world. You could use it this way. A company that just close door make cart, does things its own way without considering the changing market, is bound to eventually fail. Or, I try to broaden my social and professional circle. I check out what other companies are doing to keep myself competitive. I don't close door make cart. Or you can say, a lot of people think asking for help is a sign of weakness. So they just close door, make cart, and lose out. So that's our idiom for today. Close door, make cart. Shutting yourself off from the world and doing things your own way with a very limited perspective. Close door, make cart. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is 
John Van Trieste and the destination, the world of lacquerware. Lacquerware is one of those art forms like porcelain and silk weaving that East Asia has led the world in. Though the art is not native to Taiwan, it is spread here too, and the great traditions of both China and Japan have left their marks here. Over the past few centuries, objects from bowls and chopsticks to gift boxes have either come here or been made here. And since the 20th century, Taiwanese lacquerware has begun to feature Taiwanese designs too. What's great about lacquerware is that it's beautiful and shiny. It can keep for thousands of years, and it's not necessarily expensive. Though lacquerware has largely been replaced these days, one exhibit at the Gaosheng Museum of History seeks to draw attention back to these beautiful qualities and to lacquer's place in Taiwan's past. Museum curator Huang Yujun is here this week to introduce Taiwan's history of lacquer. The raw material lacquer is made from the sap of a tree that is applied as a coating onto some other surface. Ms. Huang says this type of tree is not well known in Taiwan. The basic process of making lacquerware can be divided into three stages. The first involves shaping the vessel to be coated with lacquer. These vessels are often made of materials like wood, bamboo, paper, and even glass. Sometimes the vessel is simply a mold used to shape the lacquer, then removed, leaving a hardened lacquer shape called bodiless lacquer. In the second stage, a material that strengthens the base is spread on the surface. This is a material that's never seen, but which Ms. Huang says is crucial—the secret to lacquerware's longevity. Layers of lacquer are applied and smoothed, and after many layers are finished, patterns and decoration might be added in. This is the stage where a craftsman's real artistry can shine through. The pieces on display in this exhibit show a few of the most common techniques used to decorate lacquer. There is one process that results in a pure, single-colored finish, simple but elegant. In another process, the artist cuts a pattern into the lacquer with a knife and then fills in the grooves left behind with some other material. Artists can paint with different colored lacquers to create an image. They can also use the stickiness of the lacquer to inlay other materials like shells. Visitors to the exhibit can compare the effects each of these techniques creates. Where did Taiwan's earliest lacquerware come from? The answer is China, a place where lacquerware dates back millennia. According to Ms. Huang, the earliest example of lacquerware yet unearthed comes from China's Neolithic Hamudu culture, and the museum's own collection includes an example of lacquerware from the Han Dynasty, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 years ago. Lacquerware developed into a high art over time, and during the Ming Dynasty between the 14th and 17th centuries, it was well developed indeed. Ms. Huang says that during this period, one craftsman called Huang Cheng penned a manual detailing the tools and techniques used to make lacquerware. She says that while more techniques have since been invented, this book still stands as the bible of lacquerware makers today. Towards the end of the Ming, ethnic Chinese migration to Taiwan got underway. 
and it continued after the following dynasty, the Qing, took control of Taiwan's west coast in the 17th century. Ethnic Chinese migration to Taiwan eventually brought with it a demand for lacquerware. Of course, people could import their lacquerware from across the Taiwan Strait. But new arrivals in Taiwan did include some lacquerware craftsmen. People could also have their lacquerware made here. The earliest piece in this exhibit dates from this Qing era. It is a richly decorated box meant to hold pastries offered to the ancestors. In 1895, another country with a long history of lacquer took control of Taiwan. This was Japan, a country whose reputation for lacquer gave us the English word Japaning, used for European imitations. During the years of Japanese rule, Japanese immigrants came to Taiwan, and they brought their own lacquerware with them. Many of the items had the same functions as Chinese lacquerware. Japanese serving trays were unique to Japan, but otherwise, things like bowls, chopsticks, and boxes were common to both traditions. When it came to design, though, Japanese lacquerware stood out. Ms. Huang says that designs were different, and sometimes techniques too, such as the Japanese technique of scattering powdered metals like gold and silver into lacquer to add sparkle as needed. Styles coming in from Japan didn't replace Chinese-style lacquerware. Instead, both varieties coexisted in Taiwan until Japanese rule ended in 1945. The museum's collection of around 200 lacquerware pieces comes largely from the two eras we've talked about today, the Qing and Japanese periods. Over 100 of these pieces are in this exhibit. With so much to look at, it's hard to know where to begin. But five of these pieces deserve our special attention. Each dates from the Japanese period and features specifically Taiwanese designs. This may be why these pieces have been deemed important cultural properties in the museum's home city of Kaohsiung. First up on our list, there's a dark-colored vase inlaid with cowbone to form the shape of Taiwanese orchids. Then there is a tiny Japanese-era jar, just 10 centimeters high. It features a detailed image of indigenous Thao people from the Sun Moon Lake area of Taiwan. The people in the image are making traditional music using wooden pestles as instruments. These two lacquerware pieces would have been sold as souvenirs of Taiwan. The Japanese period was the time when tourism to the island first began. There are also three boxes that were meant to hold smoking paraphernalia. Tobacco was once a bigger part of people's lives, and those who could afford to stored their smokes in style. These lacquered boxes show elements of life on Orchid Island off Taiwan's east coast, featuring designs like the canoes of the local Daul people. As we've already mentioned, it's not all fancy items. Lacquer was always used to make more ordinary objects, too, and these are on display as well. One piece is just a simple water ladle, and it's important here. That's because one of the exhibit's goals is to show the wide range of everyday uses lacquer can have. 
Ms. Huang says that traditional materials like pottery are still widely appreciated today. But lacquerware is something people in today's Taiwan don't have quite the same connection with. In many cases, lacquerware has been replaced by plastic. There are even plastic objects that mimic lacquerware's looks. And Ms. Huang says those who don't know better might even be fooled by them. The exhibit tries to put lacquer back in the spotlight. There are good reasons to do this, and good reasons to bring lacquer back. Like plastic, lacquerware stays around for an awfully long time. Like plastic, lacquerware can also be used to make any container or utensil. But because lacquerware is beautiful, lacquer objects get reused, hung onto, and passed down instead of thrown away. At a time when Taiwan considers plastic's place, an old art form may offer one alternative. Ms. Huang says both the museum and the government would like to see lacquerware make a comeback. The good news is that in today's Taiwan, lacquerware is still being made. It may no longer coat our smoking boxes, but Ms. Huang says there are still craftsmen out there in Taiwan drawing on centuries of outside influence and finding their own ways to bring this art form forward. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. From a fruit market in Tel Aviv to a fish seller in Taipei, the people of our world are working hard to make a living. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. But innovation does not promote the economy. What you have to do is to make the innovative discovery into a product that can sell. Who does that? These are the entrepreneurs. So the combination of innovation and entrepreneurship is critical for the development of modern thriving society. Hello and welcome to this week's On the Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Dr. Dan Schachtman visited Taiwan in mid-November to share his endeavors in promoting the development of startup ecosystem in Israel. Dr. Schachtman was awarded the 2011 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery of quasi-crystals. His advice to the young people in Taiwan is that they should not fear failure, even though failure is one of the cultural constraints for Taiwanese, adding that the young scientists should go ahead and get involved in startups. Israel has become a high-tech startup powerhouse that attracts major players from different parts of the world, and Dr. Shekmant believes with the history of technology innovation Taiwan has, it will become a launch site for startups if young people are not afraid to try and make new discoveries. And our guest today is Dr. Dan Shetman, a Nobel laureate. Dr. Dan Shetman, take us back to the year 2011. Tell us how you felt when you won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Well, I can tell you that um, the announcement that uh, reached me uh, while I was in my office was a total surprise for me. Not that I did not expect the Nobel, because every year I was a candidate uh, for many years, but I thought that I would receive it in physics. 
and for some reason, uh, unjustified reason, I must say. And uh, when they announced the uh, prize in physics, a day before they announced chemistry, I said, okay, so another year gone by. And then the next day, I didn't expect anything. And while I was sitting in my office, a telephone came, and uh, they told me, you uh, are a Nobel laureate in chemistry. So, but you expected to win uh, the Nobel Prize, actually, in uh, physics. Yeah, I thought for there is no reason why, but mainly because my friends, most of them are physicists, and they told me that they nominated uh, for me, me to the prize in physics. So I thought that that's they will they I will uh, receive it in physics. But but there is no reason for that. Usually, uh, the prizes in crystallography go to chemistry. You had been uh, nominated many times, uh, so did you expect that you would win? Yes. Okay. Now, why did you name uh, Dr. Dan Shetman your discovery quasi-crystal? Well, I did not name it quasi-crystal. The name quasi-crystal is a nickname that was given by another person. I call it uh, quasi-crystalline materials, not quasi-crystal. Quasi-crystalline materials. But quasi-crystal is a nickname in, in, in court, and it's easier to pronounce, so many people use it. I did not invent this name. A scientist, uh, I believe, uh, should have a lot of good qualities. So what do you think are some of the important qualities a scientist should have? Well, <laughs> very good question. I think curiosity. Um paying attention to details, but most of all, be an expert in something. And when I talk to young people, I encourage them to become experts in something they like. And they can start in high school. If you want to be a scientist, I say to young people, you have to have two main attributes. You have to know a lot about different sciences, physics, chemistry, you have to know enough mathematics and biology and so on. But above all, develop one peak of expertise. And if you have broad knowledge and have one peak of expertise, I promise you, you'll have a wonderful scientific career. This is my message to many young children that I talk to around the world. You said uh, curiosity, paying attention to all the details, and of course become an expert um, in different kinds of sciences, including mathematics, uh, calculus, and so on and so forth. But uh, Dr. Dan Shatman, do you, when do you think is a good time for, say, um, a child to start? Do you think that uh, they should start in the elementary school, in junior high school, or even in high school? Well, I think that we should start teaching science in kindergartens at age five. At this age, uh, young people are willing to learn new things, and if you teach them science, real science, like you teach adults, but in a language that they can understand, they may want to become scientists in their future. I think that the young children can really learn good science, real science, when they are very young. But you know, you have to know how to teach it. And, and if you do that, then uh, you encourage young people to become scientists later in their career.
Yeah, and it all goes back to education. Do you think that、uh, this is the way children are taught in Israel, or maybe、uh, according to your observation here in Taiwan as well? Well, I know that I started a program to teach science to kindergarten children in Haifa, my hometown in Israel. I try to promote it around the world, in Taiwan included,、um, to teach real science、uh, to kindergarten children. And I prepare. I have a team in Israel that prepare the curriculum for such a, a class of、uh, science. And.、Um, If you have a chance to visit Israel, there is、uh, at least one kindergarten with a real laboratory in which we teach science in the kindergarten. And when you enter the laboratory, you think that you are in a university, except that the children there they sit down with the laboratory coats and they perform real science, and they are five years old. It can be done. It should be done. We need many more scientists and engineers, especially in countries like Taiwan. Also in Israel as well, I suppose. Also in Israel, you're right. But you know,、uh, Taiwan have a special pro- problem.、Uh, you are an aging population,、mm-hmm. and consequently, every young man and woman will help to do to produce more GDP per capita to sustain the elderly and to sustain the system. So, a good way to produce more GDP per capita is to open startups. And who are the people that open startups? These are the people who are scientists and engineers and biologists and MDs. We need many more of these people, and this is why I talk about the following subject. I ask the question: Why should we teach science in kindergartens and technological entrepreneurship in universities? This is very important for Taiwan. You're listening to On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Shetman, the 2011 Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. Yes, indeed, and actually,、um, a lot of younger generation here in Taiwan. Tends to be involved in startups as well. Well, science and startups have a, a, a great connection because、uh, a startup incubator should have the scientific technology and knowledge.、Um, can you discuss the impact of science on startups? Of course. You know,、um, let us start this way. In many countries in the world, leaders talk about innovation. Innovation, 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 and I tell them, you have innovation in your country. There is a lot of innovation in universities, but innovation does not promote the economy. What you have to do is to make the innovative discovery into a product that can sell. Who does that? These are the entrepreneurs. So the technological entrepreneurs take the innovation, make a product, and sell it on the market. So. The combination of innovation and entrepreneurship is critical for the development of modern societies, modern thriving societies. Do you think that、uh, Taiwan has done that—a combination of innovation and entrepreneurship? Well, I think that Taiwan has、uh, a lot of innovation. There is no question about that, and you are very successful in that. Um, as far as entrepreneurship, I don't know the numbers in Taiwan, but I can tell you that there is one thing in your culture that、uh, is, a stum- is, is a stumbling block to entrepreneurship, and that is called fear of failure. 
In many countries in this part of the world, failure is a shame. Shame on you, shame on your family. And that's not so. That's not so. When you take the risk of starting a startup, there is a chance that you will fail. But failure is okay. Start again. It's not a shame to fail. Many fail. Start again. By now, you are a more experienced entrepreneur, and you have much better chance to succeed. So the slogan that I bring in is, failure, okay, start again. No shame. <laughs> failure is okay, start again. Yes. Uh, well, we know a lot of Taiwanese are so much afraid to fail. Well, is that the main reason why today Israel can become a, a startup nation? Well, this is one of the reasons. There are many reasons to that. Um, and there are differences between uh, Taiwan, but not only Taiwan, many countries in the world and Israel. You see, Taiwan is very successful. It is successful because people are obedient. They do what the boss said, and they work hard, and everything works fine. Israel is successful because people are not obedient. We think differently. We think originally. And when the boss says, you do that, many people will say, well, I have a better idea. Why don't we do it in a different way? Say it to the boss. So we are a more, we are a society of, of equality. There, there's no, there is no difference between people in Israel. It's a true democracy, and there are no, there are no layers between, between people. And, and this is one of the reasons that Israel is successful. There are other reasons, of course. I don't know if you know, but I have started to teach technological entrepreneurship in my university, the Technion in Haifa, in Israel, 31 years ago, before the words were there and before we had entrepreneurship. I started to teach how to open startups in Israel. And my class was a large class. I had hundreds of students in my class. And by now, 31 years later, the class continues. Not under me. I stopped uh, teaching it uh, three years ago. But other people continue. And by now, we have more than 10,000 engineers and scientists that took my class. And 25% of them were involved in startups. It's an amazing success. So I was one of the reasons that Israel is now a startup nation, but by far not the only reason. You see, we have created in Israel or a, a eco, an ecosystem uh, that encourages, that enables entrepreneurship to thrive. And it's a complex structure, but which is called ecosystem for entrepreneurship. And it's, there are many factors that that created this situation. And luckily, we are there now. And is in Israel, as you know, entrepreneurship uh, is very successful. Do you think that Taiwan can follow the example of uh, Israel, you know, to become yes, a startup yes, nation? Yes, of course. But it is, of course. But uh, you have to remove one hurdle, and that is fear of failure. Failure, okay. Start again. No problem. It's mm -hmm. not a shame to fail. This is one thing. The other thing is that uh, the government has to support entrepreneurship. And uh, the government can take examples from the United States and from Israel how to uh, support uh, entrepreneurship. Um, and, uh, of course, teach how to open a startup, even in high schools and then in all, in all technical universities. Teach how to open startups. 
it, you have you can learn it. You know, it's like any other subject. You can learn how to open and succeed in a startup. <laughs> so teach it. Mm-hmm. So we do hope that uh, one day um, Taiwan will also become a startup nation, just like Israel. But uh, the advice from you, uh, Doctor Dan Shetman, is failure is okay. Start again. Start again. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been joined on the phone today by Dr. Dan Shetman, the winner of 2011 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Dr. Dan Shetman, thank you very much for your advice and your tips to the young people here in Taiwan. You're most welcome. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Take goodbye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.